When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt right. And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and for the past few weeks, we've been sharing a special series on the podcast called Human Nature, about our experiences with the natural world. In today's episode, we'll share two stories in which our storytellers' perspectives are challenged by these experiences, and they start to see a situation in a different light, whether they're in a Brazilian rainforest or a Mediterranean seaport. Our first story today is from Lauren Eckert. It was recorded at her home in British Columbia. In the rainforest, I was interned with this awesome team of Brazilian scientists studying northern Muriqui monkeys. And I was stumbling admittedly both through my Portuguese and through the dense, ever-wet, mountainous forest paths. Muriqui monkeys are oft lovingly referred to as hippie monkeys. They are captivating and adorable as well as critically endangered. Their social structure is egalitarian, and they frequently engage in these absurdly adorable full frontal hugs as a social stress relief tactic. Our team at the time was tasked with tracking, counting, observing, and photographing the monkeys to better understand them and to benefit local conservation goals. That summer in the rainforest was a time in my life when I was almost entirely motivated by the quantifiable things I could count. I was certain that the environmental crises we faced could be overcome with more data. I was also certain that counting, specifically the calories I was personally consuming and expending, was also the answer to my own struggles with self-love and self-worth. This obsession with the counted, the quantifiable, took tons of really destructive forms. Each morning, even at this remote field station in the rainforest, I would obsessively chart my 800 calories for the day. I knew exactly the carbohydrates, proteins, fats, and each tiny morsel of food that I would allow myself to eat. I'm not sure where this total obsession with counting began, but my guess is somewhere at the complicated interface of internalized misogyny, a whirling lack of control over my life, and a glaring lack of self-love. I am, however, sure that these meager portions of carefully counted black beans, alongside my skeletal frame and dangerously low body fat percentage, made the 10 to 20 kilometer hikes in the rainforest every day more dangerous and more miserable. 
While still in those dark grips of counting obsession and disordered eating, my thinness and poor health were totally invisible to me. When I first pictured my time in the rainforest, you know, I expected to be overwhelmed by what we scientists sometimes like to call charismatic megafauna, large, adorable mammals that are often the darlings of conservation efforts. I intended to be surrounded by the golden-furred, spindly-limbed murakis every day, whilst providing data and photographs and information that would immediately improve their plight. But many days into my time in the rainforest, we had not even seen the monkeys, much less collected any data to save them. Every morning, as we crossed the same streams and foggy forest mountain paths, I had a little bit of hope that we would find the monkeys. Evening, we returned down the slopes to the research station, heavy, tired, downtrodden. We would have cold showers and dinner of rice, black beans, and these really thinly sliced delicious collard greens, though I avoided the warm white rice as if it were the root of all earthly sin. Each day we awoke for another morning trek, I found it harder to keep my spirits and always lacking energy up as I tripped and stumbled in frustration behind a graceful team of scientists who had spent many a year in the forest before I arrived. Typical, we probably won't find the monkeys today morning. Gearing up for our hike, I'm greeted by a cheerful new friend and local station employee whose name was Sao Joao. Joao was this infectiously cheerful and burly middle-aged man with a prominent silvery mustache and kind eyes. He arrived with a fresh bag of homegrown and recently home-roasted coffee beans and a confidence that he could assist us in finally finding the Murakis. Although the coffee and hope of finding the monkeys were very welcome that morning, I'm skeptical that we would be successful with the latter. My skepticism arose from Joao's credentials. Joao's ecological training was totally different from my own. He had grown up in the rapidly changing, fragmented forests of the Mata Atlantica, and his wealth of knowledge stemmed not from scientific degrees, but instead from continuous experiences in this one geographic place, his home. My training in academia left me wary of such knowledge. His sure steps led us quickly over familiar streams through rows of trees covered in these bright green and red mosses. I'm stumbling along with very moderated expectations and distracted by my routine hunger, cold, and tired as we bound up yet another hill. As we moved through a final layer of that pre-dawn fog I had become so used to and crested the hill, Joao slowed his pace and grabbed his binoculars. Olye, Joao said, look in Portuguese, with a giant smile. I follow his gaze with suddenly newfound anticipation, and my thoughts of food and calories and exhaustion melted suddenly away. And that first sight of the monkeys, even from afar, takes my breath away. This, these gangly-limbed magical creatures, this is why I am here, why I was hiking, what I so profoundly care about. Joao has a hearty, knowing chuckle at my simultaneous elation and disbelief at an animal he has known his whole life. 
In that first of many exposures to the monkeys, I watch them bound through the treetops and shout my glee and astonishment at every particularly daring leap. In that moment, critical lessons began crystallizing for me. My first realization is this. Oh shit. Western science isn't the panacea I thought it was. It is certainly not the only, nor the best, way of knowing in a world filled with insane biodiversity and equally diverse, brilliant humans engaging in constant learning and thoughtful observation. Other ways of knowing far beyond counting and quantifying are, of course, complex, valuable, accurate, important on their own account. And in the case of indigenous knowledge set in millennia's worth of ecosystem management. This realization, though, as you may know, much of the world was way ahead of me on this one, particularly indigenous nations, leaders, scholars, was nonetheless really transformative and would lead me down the pathway to a totally new type of conservation, one that considers obviously critical things like social equity and decolonization in these ever-changing landscapes. But there was an even more profound way that walk in the rainforest would transform me. As I watched the monkeys bound from our vantage point, a transformation began that would eventually, literally, save me and put many recent events in a clearer light. That would start to make sense of the fact that a month before my time in the rainforest, my kind, caring, and very distraught mom had paid $90 in shipping fees to send a massive jar of natural peanut butter to Brazil from the U.S. It was one of the only calorically dense foods on my approved health foods list. That reframed the experience the other day when I was too downtrodden and tired to go looking for the monkeys again when Dona Maria, our station caretaker, had stopped me mid-P90X workout to ask, slightly perplexed, if I wanted to be a clothing model. At the time, I wrote her remarks off as a matter of cultural misunderstanding. Dona Maria must not be familiar with the craze of fitness media and other cardio workouts. What I began to see as I realized Wow's way of knowledge and my own follies on that hill was that I was a shadow of myself, starving, miserable, skeletal, sick. When I first found myself at home in the Mata Atlantica rainforest that unusually cold June, I was obsessed with counting. Calories, grade point averages, monkeys in a local population. I was certain we could save the world and I could save myself through calculating and extrapolating our way out of oblivion. On both counts, I was wrong. An average apple holds within its sweet, fleshy bean about 80 kilocalories of energy, 4 grams of soluble fiber, and about 20 grams of carbohydrates. But unlocking these quantitative measurements, while useful, does not knowledge of the whole apple make. These measurements sterilize the miracle of the apple, that its fleshy interior is sun spun into food that will give you energy to do the cliche things. Laugh, love, write dance. Nor does it account for the apple's life history. Was it mass-produced, plucked from the branch of a tree planted by a relative? In making the apple only a caloric unit, 
and my body only a fat saving or fat losing machine. I had denied myself the glory of an apple, the relationship with a fruit that humans have been eating, planting, stewarding, manipulating for thousands of years. Fewer than 1,000 northern Muraki monkeys are alive in the Mata Atlantica and on our planet today. While Western scientific understanding of their species is critical to their survival, data alone won't save them. Perhaps we start instead by recognizing just how much we have to learn. Perhaps we start by following, stumbling, shouting our joy at a leaping grace of an endangered golden monkey, or reveling in our sun-made food fruit. That was Lauren Eckert. Lauren is a settler and conservation scientist currently based in Powell River, British Columbia. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Victoria, a Raincoast Conservation Fellow, a veneer scholar, a National Geographic explorer, a peanut butter aficionada, and an adventure enthusiast. Before we continue, I just want to remind everyone that Story Collider is planning to return to the stage next month with our first show on August 24th at Caveat in New York City. Vaccination or proof of recent negative test will be required at the door, which will be the case for all of our indoor shows. If you're in New York City, we would love to see you there. If you're not in New York City, you can also buy a ticket to watch the live stream, which is an option we're going to try to offer for all of our indoor shows whenever possible. And that way, if it becomes necessary for us not to have an in-person audience, because of case rates rising, we can still make those shows available via live stream. We're also going to be holding an outdoor show at QED in Queens on September 2nd with more outdoor and hybrid shows to follow in D.C., Boston, Chicago, Atlanta, and more. And in the meantime, our homestage communities where it's not yet safe to reopen will continue to host online shows, so there will be plenty of online programming available for anyone who prefers to watch from home. You can read more about our reopening plan at storycollider.org. As we return to in-person work, StoryCollider is continuing to offer our online storytelling workshops for individuals. StoryCollider's approach to these workshops combines scientific theory with artistic practice so that each participant can learn and understand the research that underlies our philosophy of storytelling and also gain real, tangible communication tools that you can use in your lectures, talks, and performances, but also in day-to-day life. This is what makes our workshop unlike any other storytelling or science communication training. But you don't have to take my word for it. Here are some of our workshoppers sharing their experiences in their own words. Story Collider, the storytelling class was amazing. It was a great experience. Over six sessions across two weeks, we got to learn the science of storytelling, how to make a story compelling. We worked with very energetic and professional and hilarious instructors. We also worked with each other among the students to workshop a story that we had in mind into a really great piece. I had a great time in the workshop. Uh, Gastor and Devin did a really great job creating a, uh, a welcoming environment for, for maybe somebody who's a bit more introverted like me, but wants to be but wants to be a better writer and a better storyteller. It quickly became one of the highlights of my week. It really made me appreciate science in a new way because it reminded me of how human it is. The workshop is really good at teaching you 
how to story tell science in a way that it emphasizes the human part of the science and makes it insightful and meaningful and universal and relatable and inspiring. What's not to like about Story Collider Workshop? You get to hang out with an awesome bunch of people, get inspired, get amazing tips and tricks about effective storytelling, and you get to share your own stories. All in all, awesome, fun, amazing group to work with, and I had so much fun. I highly recommend it. Find out more about our workshop program at storycollider.org workshops. We would love to have you join our workshop community no matter where you're located in the world, no matter what career or career stage you're in. So once again, go to storycollider.org workshops to learn more and sign up today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Our next story today is from Dehia Balabib. It was recorded recently at her home in Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm a marine biologist, but I'm not a fan of Jacques Cousteau. And like many marine biologists, or whatever I can call myself these days, let's just say multidisciplinary ocean researcher. I did not come to this field because I was inspired by tuna or a sad-faced dolphin shown in, in an inspiring documentary with nice and dramatic music. I am sure he was a revolutionary diver, but I grew up in a country where they only showed his documentaries to mourn the death or the massacre of dozens of people. See, during my childhood in Algeria, the national television would cut all entertainment programs and replace them with documentaries all day long to show mourning. And since we were living in a terrorist era, we had a lot of that. So whenever Cousteau was on TV, the first thing that came to my mind was, who died? It's still the case today. I cannot watch a Cousteau documentary without entertaining those, ironically, same feelings. I don't even know how to swim, and yet because I grew up in a very challenging context for women where I was and my fellow women expected to be medical doctors or teachers or housewives only, and our choices were very limited, I decided to challenge that by enrolling in a more fun program. So going on a boat, diving without knowing how to swim, it was really fun. And I learned to love it, just like a forced marriage sometimes. But what I loved was sampling fish, calculating their age, knowing how much fish were left in the water, what typically marine biologists would do. I was trained to think that fishers were predators wanting to extract as many fish as possible, emptying the waters, driven by greed and money. I had this very um, evilish image of fishermen. To me then, the ecosystem was all about the ocean without the fishermen. So with that mindset, I show up to the port of Bejaya, which is a coastal town nearly 200 kilometers from the capital of Algeria, Algiers, to do my fieldwork. The first thing that greets you when you get there is the smell, 
the smell of low tide. You know, that smell is usually very sweet. It's nice. Well, I like it. But imagine it 10 times more intense. It becomes putrid. As I walk closer to the water, I see it black. It's far from the vintage image that I had of ports, but I'm still very pleased to see that beautiful mix between old Ottoman and Roman ruins adjacent to the port. It was beautiful. God, I always have butterflies in my stomach whenever I remember that view. It's not the first time for me at that port. I had started the sampling of the very expensive royal shrimp days before. It's funny because fishermen probably feel good and satisfied and proud peeing on something royal. Fishermen peeing on shrimp is also a vintage image of the port of Vijaya. I'm told they do that because it's the cheapest way for them to keep the nice and red color of the shrimp, probably the most environmentally friendly way as well. My student job here is to wait for the shrimp boats to come in and go beg for a sample and interview vessel captains. There is this one vessel in particular that the Port Authority was very happy and always proud to show me when I started my fieldwork. It's a trawler, so basically it's a boat that drags a net on the seafloor to take shrimp and other fish. In fact, it just takes everything on its way while flattening the seafloor. It is not the most sustainable gear, if you ask me. So that boat is not port that day, and I can always recognize it easily because it is huge and nice and shiny and all new. It was really big. The captain also made a mark because he always would hit on me, likely the only female student ever to go to that port and do any research work there. We were only 10 fisheries engineers that year in the whole country. Five of us were women, and I had to experience that. I mean, dude, it's not romantic. I tried friend zoning him, but it didn't work. Oh, I still feel the disgusting feeling. So it's not gratifying to undergo such a behavior while doing field work. But that isn't the only issue. This captain, Yazid, really comes off as um, greedy. In his many attempts to convince me to marry him, he often mentions his apartment he bought in Spain and that in three or four years, he, a 27-year-old, will be so rich he will retire from fishing after making the most of it. And he is making the most of it today. That often strikes a nerve. It made me angry. And I always keep quiet because I want my sample. Also, it was really intimidating for me. I'm a 20-year-old woman dressed like the young version of Britney Spears, aspiring to be Lara Croft, surrounded by men, big boats, and lacking, very much lacking confidence. I usually only interested in shrimp fishers because I'm a marine biologist and I need to know absolutely everything about the age of shrimp and how they reproduce. I guess I'm one of those people who are really into shrimp porn. Whenever I go to port, the trawlers are there, so I just need to go on board, ask for my sample, do my interview in a very busy and intimidating setting, smile and nod at the captain hitting on me, and just, and just leave. But today, there are no trawlers here yet. I can see the big shiny one Yazid operated fishing not far from the coast, but it's not back yet, and I need to kill the time. So I start walking aimlessly through the beautiful blue nets, taking pictures with my old clap phone, and I know those pictures are never going to make it to my computer, then I see this old fisherman. I'm assuming he's a fisherman because he's repairing his nets. He's just sitting there on a little stool, knitting. He has this rusty blue jean jacket. His face has the traces of hard work and a heavy exposure to sunlight. He's alone, 
I'm alone, so I'm thinking, I'm just going to talk to him. Little do I know that that conversation would change my future and my perception of my own past. I say salam to greet the fisherman, which means, peace be upon you. He looks at me with what I'm thinking is a judgmental smile, maybe. But I later figure that it is a sad smile of one that is worried. He does not seem surprised to see me, but he asks what I was doing there. And as I'm explaining, I ask him if I could interview him. I'm going rogue here. He does not fish for shrimp, but for sharks that live on the bottom of the sea and other species, and I was only supposed to interview troll captains along the lines of those rigid sampling methods that we love so much in science. My questions are designed to be very simple. What do you fish for? How many times do you go out at sea? How much fish do you catch? Translating in economic terms into how much money do you make? He pauses from talking for a second as he was answering my questions while he was still knitting. And as he's talking about all the sharks, he looks up towards the sea and points with his needle to that one shiny big boat and says, Do you see that boat? Do you see how close it is? It's not supposed to be there. He takes all the fish away. I caught nothing. That question... I asked with not much sensitivity and somewhere from my high horse as I was just getting comfortable, is actually a hit in the heart. At that moment, I see tears in his eyes, and his tone went from anger to uh, a mix of sadness, frustration, hopelessness. They pay the Navy, and I'm going home tonight to my kids, empty-handed. I am from a culture where we do not see men cry a lot. He cried. He was vulnerable. He exposed me to the human side of the ocean, and for the first time, I saw a divide between greed and identity, culture, necessity in fishing. That day, those tears, that fisherman whose name I have not asked, made me go back to my supervisor and tell her, and there's a nuance here, I haven't asked for permission. I told her that I was going to work on the bioeconomics of the fishery instead. I was not going really towards a, like, a scientific breakthrough or anything like that, although you probably learned something from the fisherman peeing on the shrimp. But I decided I did not want to count fish and calculate their age anymore. And I'm sure there is much more to it as a marine biologist, but I wanted to focus on the people. I was really interested in the people. I was moved by his emotions, and quite drastically so. Why would the troller fish so close when it was not supposed to? Why would this fisherman not be protected by existing laws that were ill-implemented? How can he make a decent living? What steps were missing? How could I help? Can I actually be pretentious enough to assume that I could ever help? That same year, six months later, I was in Quebec studying fisheries management and focusing on the people for my master's. And fast forward to the future, as a researcher, I now entertain a narrative where even small-scale fishermen that get involved in like drug trafficking and other types of crimes have their fair share of tears and should not be criminalized. Marine protected areas that we cherish so much are great, but they're only great when the people that are adjacent to them are taken into account and participate. My idea today is one where these people are stewards of the ocean. They are part of it, and hence they should not be excluded by mechanisms such as illegal fishing or ill-thought governance or conservation initiatives or an advocacy narrative that calls people to stop eating fish. 
It may be a frequency illusion or, as we call it, a Bader-Manhoff phenomenon, a cognitive bias where I see and hear over and over again the same thing. They took all the fish away from me. But I now understand that Yazid, the greed-driven fisherman, with a lack of manners, isn't a fair representation of these people. In fact, most fishermen I meet today, even those charged for offenses, have a story to tell that is far from my initial stereotype. I will never forget those tears. I thought I would be able to one day maybe help that fisherman or fishermen like him. And today I'm very glad that he helped me. That was Tahia Bellabib. Tahia is a principal investigator of fisheries at EcoTrust Canada, Vancouver, and the founder of Spyglass.fish. Her work integrates notions of adjacency, fairness, and accountability relating to the global oceans and fisheries, databases on sea crimes and their impacts on small-scale communities in the world, and engagement with stakeholders to implement research findings and policy. She's a two-time TEDxer and is the Chief Scientific Officer at Shackleton Research Trust, meant to empower underrepresented students of science. Mobilizing interdisciplinary research, she combines a complexion of expertise in disciplines and hard data with nuanced understanding of the economic and political landscapes of the country she works on. Story Collider is so grateful to Lauren and Dehia for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, Executive Director of Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's Program Director, Nissa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Misha Gajewski and Josh Silberg. Our theme music is by Ghost. Stay tuned for our next episode of Human Nature next week. Until then, thanks for listening.